Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We're nearing the end of the Dutch Revolt, the Eighty Years' War, but we're not quite there yet. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes on it, you might want to go do that now. Last episode, I cruelly left Maurice of Nassau stuck on the beach outside of Newport, his supply lines and avenue of retreat blocked by Archduke Albert and an army that Maurice thought didn't exist on one side, the defiant town of Newport on another, and the sea on yet another. This is the Dutch Revolt Part 8, Maurice and Oldenbarnevelt, and this is the Almost Forgotten. The summer of 1600 saw Maurice of Nassau, against his better judgment, lead a Dutch army down the coast of Flanders at the behest of Oldenbarnevelt and the States General. His force was large enough that if it was defeated, much of the Dutch territory would be undermanned and have to scramble to raise enough troops to defend against any counterattacks. But the States General wasn't worried. The Spanish forces were in mutiny again and the archdukes, who now reigned sovereign in the Spanish Netherlands, had no army to stop him. Until, that is, Archduke Albert ended the mutiny, and all of a sudden, did have an army. As he saw the trap that was going to close around the Dutch, Maurice sent 2,000 of his infantry and four squadrons of cavalry, all under his cousin Ernst Casimir, to try to delay the archduke's arrival by taking the bridge at Leffinga. The Spanish, though, had already taken the bridge. Ernst Casimir knew he needed to buy Maurice time to get into position. He dug in and waited for the onslaught of the large Spanish force, which he knew would overwhelm him. As the attack began, the Dutch cavalry and soon the Zealand infantry fled quickly. The Scottish veterans with them held on longer and suffered heavier losses before fleeing as well. It was bad, Probably half of the 2,000 were killed, with little loss on the Spanish side. Maurice and most of the Dutch Republic's forces were now properly trapped between the fortified city of Newport and a Spanish army, with the sea at their backs. The Spanish could slowly squeeze Maurice, taking back any fortresses he held, besieging him, and taking their time to annihilate the state's general army. But the Spanish soldiers would have none of it, They didn't end the mutiny and rejoin the army to march around and not fight the enemy. Attack now, they demanded, or they wouldn't fight at all. As ships appeared on the coast, they saw a Dutch avenue of escape opening up, and the leadership agreed the attack must go forward. The distraction by Ernst Casimir, though, gave Maurice enough time to get his army across the river outside of Newport safely the Dutch were able to form up on the dunes above the beach, which was slowly disappearing under the tide. Dutch ships finally started showing up on the beach, but there was no time to get on them, so Maurice dismissed them. There would be no retreat. The Spanish army approached them on the morning of July 2nd, and the battle began. Maurice sent a cavalry charge in, and then retreated to lure the Spanish into a trap. It worked, But the Dutch cannons opened fire too soon, and the Spanish cavalry was able to make an orderly retreat in time. 
A fierce infantry battle ensued. The well-drilled Dutch and English army faced veteran Spanish troops. Francis Vere was in the middle of it, leading the forces that repulsed the Spanish attack. Finally, though, the Dutch infantry broke, and it fled back from the dunes. It looked as if all was lost, as the Spanish had nearly reached the Dutch artillery. But Maurice had one final card to play. He sent in the three remaining squadrons of cavalry he was holding in reserve. The Spanish, marching forward slowly on the sand and weary from slogging through it, paused at the surprising sight of the horsemen coming at them. Then the cannons lit up, the cavalry came charging in, and the Spanish line was shattered. They turned and fled, only a few yards from victory, and perhaps the annihilation of that Dutch army. Instead, the Battle of Newport turned into a rout, with Maurice's orders saving the Republic from a disaster. The Archduke, who fought bravely and was in the thick of it, fled with his army back to Bruges and then Ghent. Maurice, knowing his army was overextended, remember, he never wanted to mount this campaign, extricated the Dutch army and returned back to Republican territory rather than try to take Newport. He gets criticized for not capitalizing on the victory. But while it appears now it would have been difficult for Albert to recover quickly and gather more forces, at the time Maurice was probably just relieved to make it out of the trap in which he had found himself. His army was then able to safely embark on those ships and they made their way home. Both armies and both commanders exhausted, they retired to their respective corners to regroup and try again the following year. That winter, Maurice spent time with Margareta van Mechelen, a Catholic woman of minor nobility. She would give him three children, all boys, two of which lived past infancy, but she and Maurice didn't marry. Maybe this was because she was Catholic, and maybe it was because she was only minor nobility. Maybe he was saving himself for some sort of marriage alliance. Despite the near disaster, the Dutch had won a huge victory. Maurice was now proven to be a great commander. King Philip was dead. The Netherlands was perhaps in its best position since the war started. In 1601, Maurice's first son was born, and Archduke Albert brought an army to Oostend, a heavily fortified seaside town up the Flanders coast from Newport. He eventually was able to keep about 20,000 men invested outside the town, while, at least at the beginning, the city was still reachable by sea, so it could be resupplied. Maurice did not go to relieve the town, though. He instead marched out to the Rhineland and took, after several weeks of siege, a couple of strategically located cities. Oostend remained under constant threat, but not of starvation. The United Netherlands were determined to hold their only remaining city in Flanders, and the siege ground to a stalemate. Maurice refused the States General's request to march a relief army there, believing he could not take on the huge, entrenched Spanish force in open battle. He tried to take the city of Sertokenbosch in northern Brabant by siege as a way to distract and weaken the Spanish, but he called off that siege when a large relief army approached. Oostend remained under siege throughout the winter, with perhaps 2,000 English and maybe twice as many Dutch in the garrison at any one time, although control of the port allowed them to rotate the soldiers in and out. It was nearly taken in December, but Francis Vere, in command of the garrison, asked for a ceasefire to negotiate terms. 
He delayed for several days, and when a group of reinforcements finally arrived so that he could once again properly defend the walls, he sent the Spanish negotiators on their way. Assaults were renewed, but Veer, with 600 fresh soldiers, was able to keep the Spanish out. In 1602, the siege continued, and Maurice marched into Brabant, but he didn't, as some had hoped, march out to the coast to relieve Oostend. Instead, he spent three months besieging and eventually capturing the city of Grave, which sat upon the southern bank of the Meuse just across the border and had been taken by Alexander Farnese in 1586. William the Silent's youngest son, Frederick Henry, just a baby when his father was assassinated, was now 18 years old, and he commanded some forces in this battle. Indicative of the rise in Dutch power and its newly found access to Asia, in 1602, the States General sponsored the creation of a single entity to which it gave monopolistic powers over all Asian trade. Any previous trading company was invited to be acquired by the new Verendiga Oost Indische Company, the VOC, the United East India Company. Today, it's known as the Dutch East India Company, and it was founded in March of 1602. In return for paying an annual fee, it was allowed to maintain armies and navies, make treaties in Asia in the name of the Netherlands, and interest in the company was owned by the various provincial chambers. As insane as the idea of the VOC seems today, a private entity given the powers of state in a certain region, it actually makes some sense with respect to the construction of the Dutch Republic. The United Provinces were essentially an oligarchy. The States General were 18 men who were pulled from the various provincial versions of States General, which were made up of big city elite burghers, merchants, and nobles. Their navy at the time was mostly merchant traders with cannons and gunpowder. What they were really doing was creating a second navy to deal with another part of the world and, oh yeah, also making gobs of money in trade. By 1603, just a year later, they already had their first victories over their Iberian rivals, seizing a massive Portuguese treasure ship and chasing away Spanish galleons that were attempting to stop Dutch trade on the Indonesian island of Java. The VOC would become the most powerful commercial entity in the world for a time, and perhaps the most influential corporation ever to exist, although it wasn't necessarily created to be a corporation in the modern sense. Before its existence, people invested in individual ventures, but the States General invested in the whole corporation in innovation at the time. It profoundly influenced the growth and power of the Dutch into their golden age, but it also brought misery to almost all of the indigenous peoples it encountered and was a leading force in the international slave trade. The year after the formation of the VOC, Queen Elizabeth, that constant, if at times reluctant ally of the Dutch Republic, finally died. She was succeeded by her nephew James, the King of Scotland. There was fear in the United Provinces that James would ignore them, or worse, unite the Spanish to attack. But like Philip III over in Spain, King James had himself a proxy king, Robert Cecil, who was the Secretary of State and essentially Prime Minister for Elizabeth until her death. Cecil wasn't as powerful as the Duke of Lerma was in Spain, but his influence, in addition to French diplomacy and the genuine understanding by James that Spanish reconquest of the Netherlands would be very dangerous for England, led to his continued support of the Dutch Republic. 
James did, however, eventually negotiate a peace with Spain, but not an alliance, and he continued to recognize Dutch independence. All the while, the siege at Usten dragged on, with no real progress being made, other than thousands on both sides dying of disease and hundreds dying in daily skirmishes while working on mining and other siege works. In April of 1604, Maurice marched an army to the edge of Zeeland and transported them across the mouth of the western Scheldt, landing on an island on the northern edge of Flanders. If you look at a map today, it isn't apparent, but maps from the time, linked on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com, show that across another waterway, lay the port town of Slawis. Slawis was a bigger port than Oostend, and it wasn't as far south into Flanders as Newport was, so it seemed like a good target. Maurice proceeded cautiously. His hesitations about the campaign for Newport had proved prescient, and he was again fearful of losing the entire war over one Flemish city. Maurice and his force followed a local willing to help them across various waterways, chasing off a small contingent of Spanish cavalry, and took the nearby fort of Coxie. They were now in mainland Flanders, not on an island in the Delta, and they came upon the next fortification. This one, called St. Catherine's, sat in such wet and squishy ground that Maurice didn't believe he'd be able to properly besiege it. It was manned mostly by irregulars, so he tried scaring them out, first firing cannons, although they couldn't set up close enough to do much damage then threatening to hang anyone inside who didn't surrender. Both were met with derision. Maurice decided to head back, because he couldn't see a way to proceed. As his cannons tried to leave in the darkness of night, some got stuck in a bog, and there was such a commotion trying to get them out, that the garrison in St. Catharines thought even more cannons were coming, and they fled in a panic. Ready to abandon the whole operation, instead, Maurice was able to take this fort that had seemed so impervious earlier that day. A large attack on his rearguard in Katzen, that island he took, almost spoiled it anyway. But the defenders held firm, and Maurice's supply lines remained open. Maurice quickly took the remaining towns on the way to Slaus, before beginning the process of putting it to siege. By the end of May, the siege had begun to fully cut off supplies to the city. A relief force of 4,000 came, but was quickly put to flight, and most of their provisions were taken. The Republican force set in to wait. Either the Spanish would send a larger force for Moostend, and that city would be relieved, or Slaus would capitulate. The Spanish commander, at the behest of the Archdukes, sent another small force in August, but still kept most of his army behind, attempting to keep besieging Oostend, now with many of the outer fortifications taken and most of the city in ruins, while trying to relieve Slaus. Several attacks on the Dutch lines were repulsed before the Spanish went hard after Kotzend instead of Slaus. It was a sound strategy and might have worked, but William Lewis had remained there and held strong until Maurice sent more troops over. The Spanish were forced to withdraw. The next day Slaus surrendered, And like what almost always happened when the Dutch Republic took a city, the garrison marched out with full honors, and Maurice ensured that his troops did not harass the inhabitants, and it was integrated into the United Provinces. They also freed 1,500 galley slaves, who were given passage home, wherever that may be, mostly the Ottoman Empire. 
a few stayed and enlisted in the service of the Republic. After the campaign that resulted in the capture of the large port of Slouse in northern Flanders, the Republic had complete control of every outlet of the Scheldt and some protections against incursions north into Zeeland. The States General wanted Maurice to now march out to Oostend to relieve that siege. Maurice thought this was kind of silly. They had a better version of Oostend in Slaus. He prepared to do so anyway, but did it, as was his nature, very carefully, making sure his defenses were in proper order. By the time he was ready to go, there was a large storm preventing him from taking action. During that time, the garrison at Oostend was getting penned in closer and closer until they were stuck inside a smaller fortress that they dubbed Little Troy. While they may have been able to hold out there a bit, they knew they could not hold the harbor much longer, and starvation would begin. Without knowing whether or not Maurice was on his way, and with Maurice in no hurry to go, after over three years, the little beachfront city finally capitulated. This hard-fought battle was almost the definition of a Pyrrhic victory for Spain. When the Archdukes entered the city, there was almost nothing left standing. And remember, there was extensive mining going on, so not only were the buildings now rubble, there were massive craters everywhere. For three years' work, more than 30,000 inside the city, soldiers and citizens, had died. But the Spanish attackers lost twice as many, and the costs to keep up the battle were enormous. And for what? The Dutch had taken a better foothold in northern Flanders with Slaus. Were the Archdukes willing to go invest the same amount of energy in taking that town now? The rest of the year showed little fighting between the exhausted adversaries, and in 1605, the Spanish tried to reinforce with fresh troops arriving by sea, but these legions were mostly intercepted and destroyed by Dutch naval forces. Maurice tried to take advantage of the situation and retake Antwerp, He sent Ernst Casimir to take it by surprise with the aid of 7,000 troops. But there was no surprise, and after a brief skirmish, they withdrew. Ambrosia Spinola, a Genoese-born commander of Spanish troops under the Archdukes, who had been the commander when Ustend was taken, then drew together his forces and approached Maurice, who was outnumbered. They waited and watched each other. Maurice was not willing to engage and tried to discern Spinola's intentions. He was unwilling to relaunch attacks into Flanders while the Spanish had such a large force gathered. Then, Spinola wheeled his forces and marched east across the country. He quickly took the small town of Oldenzaal in the over region northeast of Gelderland. By August, he was besieging the city of Lingen, which would give the Spanish easy entry into the northern provinces of Friesland and Groningen. Maurice chased after him, but Lingen, lightly garrisoned, capitulated before he arrived. Covarden, which Maurice had taken over a decade earlier, then relieved a few years after that, was only 30 miles west of Lingen and was the next target. But Spinola hesitated and instead, after some time, moved much of his force in a different direction. This gave Maurice time to set up a defensive position in the region. He decided to attack the Spanish in a surprise maneuver across the Rhine but his cavalry did not surprise them and ended up fleeing the field. A few hundred losses on the Spanish side, a few hundred more on the Dutch side, and nothing was really accomplished except that Spinola was able to capture a few more towns in the Rhineland before both armies retired for the winter. 
Without active allies, and at a time when money was not yet pouring in from Asia, the Dutch Republic couldn't do much to press the enemy. When the Spanish again took the field, Maurice had to basically spend 1606 fighting a defensive war, trying to keep them from retaking Gelderland and driving into the heart of the country in Utrecht, or attacking the northern provinces of Friesland and Groningen. The Dutch succeeded in keeping the Spanish at bay, mostly. The Spanish did take the city of Grunlo after a siege, and eventually Rheinburg, which changed hands for at least the fourth time. By the end of the winter, though, Spinola's money, which had been keeping his troops happy, dried up. This was his own money. The Spanish crown's money had long since done the same. The Spanish army started to once again disappear. A mutinous group actually marched out to find Justinus Van Nassau, and the 500 soldiers were brought into his forces. Maurice took advantage of this, and before the winter set in, in October, he retook the town of Lockham. He tried to recapture Grunlo, but Spinola mustered a large enough force to chase the careful stadtholder away. The armies did not engage. Maurice had outnumbered Spinola, but didn't fight him. The Spanish, though, were out of money and out of energy. The States General was upset with Maurice. They wanted him to act. But he was worried that his army wasn't in the condition to fight. And whether or not he knew it, the war had sort of already been won. After 40 years of fighting, the war seemed to just sort of run out of energy. Spain wasn't getting much money from its Mediterranean territory. The trade and industry which had enriched the Spanish Netherlands had slid seamlessly up to Holland. And Spain's repression and enslavement of Native Americans wasn't bringing enough precious metals to pay for the never-ending war. Spanish soldiers were constantly owed back pay and constantly mutinying as a result. By the end of 1606, they were willing to find a way out of it already. In 1607, the year the English founded a colony in Jamestown, Virginia, the Dutch made a go at chartering a West India Company. But there was concern that it was folly, and that it would overextend the treasury and distract from the war. As ever, peace was seen as simply a way for the Spanish to reload before a surprise invasion. In February, though, at The Hague, a man from Brussels showed up to deliver a message to Oldenbarnevelt and Maurice. He brought a paper, signed by Spinola, stating that Archduke Albert and Isabella were willing to sign a truce of 10 to 12 years. They agreed to receive the man, John Nyan, a Franciscan monk from Brussels, who would discuss the proposal. John Lothrop Motley's description gives us a real taste for the scene, so I'll go to him again. Nyan, quote, was conveyed to the palace. Here he was received by an unknown and silent attendant who took him by the hand and led him through entirely deserted corridors and halls. Not a human being was seen nor a sound heard until his conductor at last reached the door of an inner apartment through which he ushered him without speaking a syllable. The monk then found himself in the presence of two personages seated at a table, covered with books and papers. One was in military undress, a fair-complexioned man of middle age, inclining to baldness, rather stout, with large blue eyes, regular features, and a mouse-colored beard. 
The other was in the velvet cloak and grave habiliments of a civil functionary, apparently 60 years of age, with massive features and a shaggy beard. The soldier was Maurice of Nassau. The statesman was John of Oldenbarnevelt, unquote. Habiliments mean clothing, by the way. I looked it up. The negotiations began, and Nyan was received by the States General, which named a five-member committee to continue the negotiations. Eventually, an armistice of eight months was announced, with the intention to create a general truce of at least ten years, maybe more, conditional to the Archdukes and Philip III recognizing the United Provinces as free countries. The announcement was a surprise to the world. Even most nobles in the Spanish Netherlands didn't know about it. England and France smiled at the tacit admission of Spain's wane in power. Many in the Dutch Republic, especially the merchants of Holland who had been paying for fully half the war for at least a decade, and probably a greater percentage before that, were glad to hear of it. Maurice was skeptical. He did not prevent the negotiation, but he increased garrisons and braced his men for the sneak attack that many thought was coming. To coincide with the announcement, news reached the Low Countries that a fleet led by Jacob van Heemskerk had sailed through the Straits of Gibraltar and attacked the Spanish fleet there in late April. It was a one-sided battle. Van Heemskerk and another 100 Dutch were killed, and no Dutch ships were lost. Ten massive Spanish galleons were lost, maybe 4,000 Spanish killed. This news certainly helped convince the Spanish on the need for an armistice in a war that cost more than they had and was now endangering their main source of revenue, fleets returning from the Americas and Asia laden with gold, silver, and spices. Negotiations dragged on throughout 1607 just to determine a basis of negotiation of the treaty. In January of 1608, Maurice was sent, against his better judgment, at the behest of the States General, to greet Spinola, sent as a negotiator, as he arrived in The Hague. Maurice was still more inclined to continue fighting than to make peace with an enemy he didn't trust to keep the peace. But Oldenbarnevelt, and the doves in the States General outnumbered him. Still, the negotiations dragged on, with various demands on both sides. Eventually, Oldenbarnevelt's truce party won out, and Maurice, realizing that if they remained at war, they would not get support of any kind from England or France, acquiesced. Still, discussions continued into 1609. Finally, on April 9th, 1609, the States General in Spain came to an agreement known as the Treaty of Antwerp. A truce of 12 years was agreed upon, although the Dutch Republic would have preferred an indefinite peace. This was really their only concession. They were able to get this without giving up their abilities to trade throughout the East and West Indies, a major sticking point for the Spanish, and part of the reason the negotiations dragged on for so long. They did not have to promise anything about Catholic worship in the territory, another big issue. But most importantly, they were recognized as a sovereign country, something that was somewhat unexpected. The French and the British figured it wasn't that important at a time when King James of England still claimed hereditary rights to half of France, and the French king claimed parts of Spain, and so on. But the Dutch absolutely insisted upon it. 
The first point that was agreed upon read that the Archdukes, Albert and Isabella, declare for themselves, as well as in the name of Philip III, quote, their willingness to treat with the Lord's states of the United Provinces in the capacity of, and as holding them for, free countries, provinces, and states, over which they have no claim, and that they are making a treaty with them in those said names and qualities, unquote. This was the key. It was monumental. A truce was essential. Trade in India was important for finances. But, 43 years, almost to the day after the Compromise of Nobles presented a petition to Margaret of Parma demanding the king moderate the Inquisition, recognition by Spain of the independence of the United Provinces of the Dutch Republic was finally secured. Because of the temporary nature of the time frame, though, Spain could say it wasn't necessarily recognizing permanent independence. It didn't matter. By 1609, the United Provinces was a major European power. The waterlogged republic with few natural resources became the world's leading sailors and created a worldwide empire. Amsterdam had nearly doubled in population to 130,000 people, while Antwerp shrunk to 50,000. Antwerp couldn't catch up to the trade in Holland. There was no reason for goods to come there anymore other than those goods that were ultimately going to the Spanish Netherlands. Antwerp's great merchants and sailors had already relocated to Holland anyway. The United Provinces became the market of Northern Europe. Not long after the truce, which had ended over four decades of religious war, was signed, a religious dispute broke out in the Netherlands among Protestants different interpretations of Calvinism, basically. Oldenbarneveld headed a faction that wanted a new interpretation of Calvinism brought before the Dutch church leaders to have its tenets adopted nationwide. People in the state of Holland, where Oldenbarneveld held the most sway, were persecuted for resisting. It wasn't exactly Inquisition-level persecution, but man, if you can't see the irony there. There was resistance and even some rioting, but Maurice, as head of the military, refused to act. He essentially sided with the other Calvinist interpretation. This resulted in a power struggle between Oldenbarneveld and Maurice. I will spare you the details of the disagreement, as well as the names of the different factions. Oldenbarneveld, for his part, seems to have attempted to push for religious toleration regardless of anyone's interpretation. But in 1617, Oldenbarneveld, unsatisfied with the military response to the rioting, orchestrated the state of Holland to create its own militia and required oaths to that province. The rest of the states general interpreted this as a declaration of independence for Holland. Maurice was never decisive when it came to politics. He was pushed by the States General, as well as public opinion, to put a stop to this immediately. And so, he marched on Holland, and there was a quick surrender without a fight. Oldenbarneveld was soon arrested. The legality of both this invasion, as well as the arrest, was questionable. But the States General was in agreement with the move. Maurice could have stepped in and stopped everything there, but his ability to be influenced by people who were genuinely concerned about what the Hollanders were doing 
as well as people who were just genuinely jealous of Oldenbarnevelt, prevented him from saving the senior Dutch statesman. Oldenbarnevelt was then sort of given the Egmont treatment. He was thrown in jail, not given proper counsel, and was eventually, in 1619, given a sham trial. His judges were from the States General, in some attempt to give it legitimacy, but the outcome was predetermined. He was condemned as a traitor, despite doing more to bring about Dutch independence than maybe any non-Nassau, and was soon executed. Johan van Oldenbarnevelt was, and remains today, a hero of the Dutch Revolt. He was crucial in the Netherlands' move from desperately seeking yet another sovereign to its realization that it could rule itself through the States General. And while Maurice was fighting against the Spanish, he basically ran the civil government of the young Dutch Republic for over two decades. But a religious dispute divided the new Republic, and however accidentally he overplayed his hand, by essentially trying to give the state of Holland its own military force. Maurice was now the sole leader of the country, although there was no real executive authority. It was more of a legislature that was personality-driven, and Oldenbarnevelt had led it since when Maurice was young and only interested in being a general. Maurice, though, was de facto in charge and able to act as a monarch. But as I said, he wasn't much for politics or the affairs of state that didn't involve soldiering. And rather than Maurice take Oldenbarnevelt's role himself, he gave the job of administration of the provinces to a few trusted advisors. At this point, Maurice was also now the Prince of Orange. His older brother Philip William, still in Brussels, had finally died. He was childless, so the title passed to Maurice. As you may recall, Maurice was not married to Margareta, the mother of his children. Whether or not she had an issue with this arrangement, the problem, of course, was for the two sons, William and Louis, who were considered illegitimate. Without legitimate children, the title would then pass to young Frederick William, William the Silent's youngest son, unless Maurice married Margareta, but he never did. In 1619, Maurice was a supporter of his sister's son, Frederick, who was the elector of the Palatinate, one of the rulers of a piece of the Holy Roman Empire. As a new Holy Roman Emperor tried to impose Catholicism on his whole empire, regions revolted, and Bohemia ousted the Habsburgs and elected Frederick as their new king. The Habsburgs, used to ruling Bohemia as elected kings in addition to their hereditary lands around Austria, We're not happy about these events in Prague. This conflict kicked off the Thirty Years' War, which gave Central Europe a taste of what the Netherlands had just gone through, tearing it to shreds. It also gave the Spanish the opportunity to try to take back the Netherlands. But thanks to the truce that Oldenbarnevelt pushed for back in 1609, they were largely spared from the Spanish being ready to pounce on the United Seven Provinces, and it took some time for the war to really get to the Low Countries. In 1620, Maurice's cousin and partner in the military innovations, William Lewis, died. It was a tough blow for Maurice, but the Thirty Years' War would soon consume him. He wasn't as successful as in the previous portions of the war, but he did have a few victories, although perhaps the loss of William Lewis 
was indeed a tougher loss than it seems. That year, 1620, Maurice sent troops into the Rhineland to try to counter his old nemesis, Spinola, who was invading that region. He wasn't involved in any major action there, as his ally Frederick was defeated further east in Germany and ended up fleeing to the Netherlands and spending most of the war in The Hague. Despite ample time to rest and recover, neither the Dutch nor the Archdukes really wanted to resume an all-out war. But they couldn't come to an agreement on peace, so a new phase of the Eighty Years' War began, and hostilities resumed, if at a more labored pace. Maurice did relieve Bergen op Zoom in 1622, as Spinola, back in the area, was besieging it. The Prince of Orange tried to take Antwerp, but failed in both taking the city and convincing Spinola to give up the siege in order to relieve that city. Maurice had also tried to eliminate the Spanish supply chain, but again failed. In 1624, though, Spinola went after Breda, one of the many towns that was thought to somehow be impregnable, even though, like, nothing seemed to actually be impregnable in this war. Maurice was off fighting in the east when Spinola appeared and began building his entrenchments. Maurice returned, but by the middle of the winter, Maurice was demoralized and in ill health. He asked to be replaced by his half-brother, Frederick Henry, as the commander of the military. Then, in April of 1625, Maurice died. According to George Edmondson, quote, Maurice was 20 years of age when Lester left Holland. He was a man very different from his father in opinions and in the character of his talents. Maurice had nothing of his father's tolerance in religious matters or his subtle skill in diplomacy. He was a born soldier, but no politician, and had no wish to interfere in the affairs of state, unquote. Maurice wasn't his father, but he was a brilliant general, at least when he was working with his cousin William Lewis. These two men helped revolutionize military tactics, and in doing so, established the Dutch Republic as an independent state, and a European power at a level that rivaled and even surpassed the traditional powers of the day. Next time, we'll end our series on the Dutch Revolt by looking at the youngest son of William the Silent, the new Prince of Orange, Frederick Henry, and the end of the Eighty Years' War. Thanks for listening. 